You know, it's amazing what you remember from your childhood. I don't know what it is that stands out to you, but there's a few things that obviously stand out to me. I remember in seventh grade, there were two things about seventh grade that I will never forget and that I will always have in the back of my memory. Uh, the first of which was that I was kind of one of the older kids in my class. And the reason being is because um, I enjoyed first grade so much that I decided to do it twice. And so I went from being one of the youngest people in a class to being one of the oldest people in a class. And so that was one of the things that I will always remember. But the second thing that I will always remember is that I was the shortest and smallest kid in the entire class. I mean, it was one of those things where um, it's kind of embarrassing for me because there were a few of the girls that I gave a run for their money, uh, but all the guys, those were all people that I looked up to. And so, you know, I would hear them say, you know, you know you're so tiny, you're so tiny. And uh, okay, so be it. Uh, and so I took all this information and this uh, thing that was glaring out to me about being so small as a good opportunity for me to go out for the seventh grade basketball team. Uh, that's what you do. And so um, that's what I did. And all throughout tryouts, that's what I would hear. But you're so tiny. You're so tiny. He is so tiny. And they would point in my direction. Uh, the good thing for me was that I could shoot. Uh, I, I could shoot from pretty much anywhere on the court. Uh, the problem was that I had to be wide open uh, to be able to shoot. Because if I wasn't, I was going to get rejected just kind of a foreshadowing of what high school would be like for me. But my shot would have been blocked. And so for about a week, we have these tryouts. And I've kind of, there's a lot of guys. You know, a lot of guys are trying out for the team. It's Indiana, so it's a big deal. And I'll never forget uh, the day that they were going to go ahead and make the cuts. And so uh, you basically uh, stood out in the hallway or sat out in the hallway until the coach would call you into his office. And then he would tell you if you made the team or not. And so uh, one after another, guys would go in there, meet with the coach, and they would leave either ecstatic and happy because they made the team or they didn't make the team and they left kind of sad and dejected. And so I had already prepared my heart and mind that I was going to get cut. There's a lot of guys, and I believe that a few of those guys even that got cut uh, that walked out before me uh, I, th I thought they were probably even better than me. And so uh, now it's my turn. I hear, Rosenberry, get in here. You're up. And so when I walk in, the coach says, Jeff, do you think you deserve to be on this team? <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, of course. You know, of course I do. And after a, a few moments of dialogue back and forth, and he's talking as if he's going to cut me, and the last thing he says was, I'll see you on Monday. I'll see you on Monday. And of course, in the back of my mind, am I the manager of the team or actually on the team? He said, you made the team. And I was so pumped. And I was shocked. Everybody in the hallway was shocked uh, that I made the team. Now, the cool part about it is when you made the team, you got a, uh, a pair of high tops, uh, Nike uh, sneakers. So basically, the, the very first Sky Jordans or Air Jordans, and they would have these in our school colors, and each player would get a pair. 
And so right before I left the coach's office, I said, hey, where's my shoes? You know, if I made the team, I, I get a pair of shoes. And he, he said this, and I kid you not, this is what he said. Well, your feet are so small, they don't make them in your size. We had to special order your high tops. And uh, so, but I made the team. And for the first several games, it was awesome. And I was awesome. I was awesome at getting water for the guys coming out of the game. See, my spot was on the bench at the end of the bench, right next to where the water coolers were. And so I would get water and I would hand it to the guys. And that's kind of the way it was uh, for quite a few games <clears throat> until there was one game. And I don't remember who was winning <laughs> But it wasn't as close as the other games were. And near the end of the game, I hear Coach's voice say, Rosenberry, get in. And uh, these were words I, I didn't really ever, I had not heard before. And so uh, I was shocked, terrified, nervous, and it was awesome all at the same time. And as I'm going into the game and the crowd is kind of getting behind me, it's kind of like the Rudy moment that I was having, um, I made the decision in my head that no matter what happens, if I get the ball, I'm going to shoot it. I'm going to shoot it because I, I don't know if I'll ever get a chance again in my life uh, to shoot a basketball in an official school game. And so uh, lucky enough for me, for some reason, the ball made it my way. I remember running down the side of the court dribbling, and I just chucked it uh, right as the clock went zero. The buzzer goes off. The ball is in the air. I mean, this is just a beautiful Hollywood moment. It's heading towards the goal. And... It was not even close. It clanked off the rim, and uh, <clears throat> I was, you know, it was just, it was heartbreaking for me. Uh, then, just like it would be, and this is exactly the way it happened, just like in your backyard shooting hoops, if you didn't make the shot, you were fouled. And I was fouled, and they called the foul, and so I go to the free throw line. Everybody else is over on the sideline because there was no more time on the clock, and uh I made one of two free throws. I think it was the only point I scored all season. But to hear my coach say, Jeff, get in the game, that is something that will, that will be with me for the rest of my life. And that is kind of what happens with the disciples and where we're at in Scripture with our Life of Christ series. And of course, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we're just studying the life of Christ, a chronological look at his life. And today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9 and Mark chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, um, turn there. If you have your phone, just find your Bible app. Go to Matthew 9 and Mark chapter 6. What Jesus does is he skips the tryouts and he just hand selects 12 guys to be his teammates, to be uh, his guys. What an amazing feeling it must have been to have Jesus call them by name. And so uh, later on, they would be known as apostles, but in this set of scriptures, they're referred to as the disciples. And so they would learn from the very best. They would get uh, trained by Jesus himself. And for several years, uh, they would watch what he would do. They would listen to the things that he would say. And Jesus, at this point in time, is going to say, okay, guys, uh, you're up. You're up. 
It's time to get off the bench. It's time to get into the game. In the passage of Scripture that we're going to read, uh, Jesus is going to address his disciples and then send them out. He's going to send them out. See, they've been training all this time. They've been watching carefully, and they've been asking a lot of questions, and now it's time for them to go out. And this was the plan from the very, very beginning. It was always the plan that they would go out, and it would eventually be what he, Jesus, would ask us to do. Now, here's the confusing part for a lot of us church people. And since you're attending online today, that's what we all are. We're church people. But there's a little bit of a difference between somebody who's just a church person and somebody who is a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Obviously, our prayer is that we would all be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And you have to ask yourself, because it really is up to you, am I in full-time ministry? Now, if somebody asks you if you're in full-time ministry, most likely most of you would say no. And if somebody asked me, hey, how many people in your church are in full-time ministry, I would say I hope all of them. And I think there's just that little misunderstanding of the difference between full-time ministry and full-time vocational ministry. Because the moment you give your life to Christ, you enter into full-time ministry. In fact, in the Greek, the word that they use for minister, it also means servant. And that's what we have all been called to do, to serve the kingdom of God. And my job each week is to hopefully train you and equip you and prepare you to go out into the harvest field so that you will be better equipped to share the message of Jesus Christ. But it really is up to you whether or not you're going to live a life on mission for Jesus. So, what would it look like if we were all so filled with Jesus, that you were so filled with Jesus that that's what overflowed from you, so that no matter where you went, uh, it would just flow out of you and onto the people next to you, the the life that uh, Jesus is talking about, that there is nothing that is more important than your dedication to him. In fact, let me just jump forward real quick and move ahead a little bit in our scriptures and just go to Matthew chapter 10. Because in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus is talking to his disciples, Jesus says, if you love your father and mother more than me, in fact, if you love your children more than me, you are not worthy to be mine. It's pretty strong, isn't it? And right after that, he tells them, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. In other words, if you are not willing, if you and I are not willing to give up our life for his sake, then we will never truly have life in Christ. You know, it's almost like Jesus is saying, you know your life, the life that you are living right now? He says, I want to be the Lord of it. This is why it's such a big deal when we proclaim Jesus is our Lord and Savior of our life. And this should never be taken lightly. It shouldn't be something that we just skim over to get to the baptism part. Uh, The baptism into Jesus happens when we declare him as Lord and then actually live it out that way. In fact, uh, 
baptism represents completion. It is 100%. It is a complete immersion that there wouldn't be any aspect of our life that would not be transformed because we have made him Lord and Savior of our life. And so that's what we want to do. And Jesus is telling his disciples, this is what I'm calling for you to do. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, hopefully you're in Matthew 9. We're going to start in verse 35. This is what it says. It says, Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, this area of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. This should sound familiar to us. Uh, this is something that is a reoccurring theme. It says in verse 36, when he saw the crowds... He had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He said to his disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord, who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. I want you to pay attention, pay close attention to how Jesus views people. It says that when he saw the crowds of people all throughout Galilee that weren't living a life dedicated to the kingdom, when he would encounter those people, he wasn't angry, he wasn't bitter. What he did was he felt compassion. He had a heart for them because they were confused and helpless. So the reason we're able to do this is because we have Christ in us. And when we have Christ in us, that is actually what will flow out of us. And we'll be able to do some things that we previously didn't think that we'd be able to do. And maybe for you or for me, it's, it's liking people or loving people or being compassionate towards people that see things different, that look at life, maybe the politics different, maybe that vote different. And so Jesus, what he does is he had, he had compassion on the people who were lost, who were not living their lives for Christ. And he also had this deep sense of wanting to reach them, which is why he's going to send out his 12. Now, if you go to the Gospel of Mark, which I love because Mark just gets to the point. And so everything that we just read, Mark is going to summarize by saying this in verse 6, in chapter 6. And this is actually the second half of verse 6. He says this, Then Jesus went from the village to village, teaching the people. That's it. That's it. He just summarized all of what we read in Matthew in one short sentence. It says, He called his twelve disciples together, and he began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick. Now, in Matthew, it says, don't even take up a walking stick. Uh, the discrepancy here is that what Jesus is telling them to do is don't go out and get more stuff. Most likely, they would have already had a walking stick with them. They could take that. Don't go buy a new one. He also said, uh, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. He says in verse 10, wherever you go, stay in the same house until you leave town. 
But if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. Now, if you read, read this same account in chapter 10 of Matthew, you're going to see a lot more details involved in what Jesus is encouraging them to do. So, <clears throat> Jesus is getting his team off the bench. It is time to take the field, to start living on mission. And the first question that we should have is, well, what is mission? What does that look like? Um, and Jesus could very easily say, it's everything that I just showed you. See, right before he gives them the instructions to go out, he spent time going into these towns, going into the synagogues, and he was teaching and he was preaching. He was healing people. He was caring for people. And now he's telling his disciples, I need you to go out and do the exact same thing. And because I am in you, you have the power to do so. Folks, please hear me out when I say this. A life in Christ is a life lived on mission. Now, when Jesus <clears throat> sends out his disciples into Galilee, he is very specific about the things that they are to do. And here is what uh, he says, here's what I want you to take with you, or more importantly, here's what I don't want you to take with you. And you start to pick up on the fact that Jesus wants all of his disciples to depend on God for all their provisions, that God is going to open up some homes for these guys to stay in, that these people of these homes are going to provide the food. And so we start to uh, depend on God for providing for our life, which is exactly what Jesus wants them to do. And when we start to do this, it's going to work on a few things with us, especially with me, and it's going to work on my pride. See, to receive from others is very humbling. And it's why I think a lot of us struggle with it. See, I'm really good at giving. I love to give. But I don't do so well uh, about receiving gifts and people giving me things. So that's something that we have to work on sometimes. But this is also the beauty of the church. That we would be such an amazing community that when anybody who was in need, we would all be there for them. That's actually the way the church began. They began by learning together and eating together, but also providing for one another when they were in need. And so Jesus is setting this up for his disciples to rely on God through people providing for his disciples. And he says, there is work to be done, and you need to be concerned about the work that needs to be done, not necessarily about the meal that you're going to eat next. And so he sends them out in six pairs of two. And this is really fascinating. He doesn't send them out alone. But he says, here's what I want you to do. And he puts them in pairs. What a beautiful design by God. People working together for the advancement of the kingdom. This is the way it should be. It's the way it should be. So when Jesus called them, he puts them in community together. Then he would train them. They would learn together from Jesus. And then they would live on mission together. 
And this right here is why it is so important who you marry. It is so important who you marry. Francis Chan in his book, uh, You and Me Forever, some of you just read through this, so you know this, but he discusses how in marriage uh, you have a built-in ministry partner. And so he hits on the fact that he, he and his wife are very different in a lot of areas. You know, he is very competitive and she is not. He likes sports and she likes crafting. And he makes these lists of things that uh, they're just very different in. But they are completely unified when it comes to living on mission together. This is all also vital when it comes to our Christian friendships. It is great to hang out at church and in homes and in backyards and, and going out with friends. But as Christ followers, our friendships are lacking if they are not moving us out into the harvest field and living on mission together. That our Christian friendships are not what God totally intended them to be if we're not going out onto the mission field together. And so Jesus does an extraordinary job of breaking this holy huddle that his disciples have been in for a while. And he says, now go, but go together. Now, most of you have been in our backyard in Loveland, Colorado. Some of you have not. Uh, but those of you who have been in our backyard, you know, uh, you probably noticed that we are surrounded by people, our neighbors, that they love to do gardening. They have their gardens. Some of them are amazing. Uh, when we moved into our house uh, just about five years ago, uh, we realized this. We looked in our backyard, and there was a, a place for a garden. <clears throat> And the first, one of the first things that we did was um, we did not plant things. Uh, we're not very good at gardening. Um, so we put in a playground instead, and our kids have never been happier. But a garden, what we've noticed from our neighbors is uh, a small garden can be attended to by one or two people. And they can keep their garden and keep it well. But when you start talking about a mission field, and I'm not sure if you can see behind me, but just the large fields that are behind me, those kind of things, one person can't do it. It's going to take all of us working together to make the impact that God wants us to make. It takes a team. And that's what the church is. And So what does it look like for us? in everyday life? What does it look like for Revive? Uh, what does it look like in your home, uh, in your friendships, in your neighborhoods? So um, I think it starts with us just being open, uh, being open to people, inviting people into your home, uh, people from church, but then people who are not church, people who don't have a relationship with God, and you bring them in. You listen to their story. You ask them how you can pray for them, and maybe you'll have an opportunity to share your story with them. It doesn't come with pulpit pounding or uh, really harsh um, kind of biblical truth, even though there may be a time for that, but it just comes with listening and loving the way that Christ would want us to love. And so... I think for a long time, what evangelism looked like to a lot of people was just inviting them to church. Uh, that's 
how I did it for so long. That's how I know a lot of people, hey, will you just come to church? And that was the extent of their evangelistic outreach, uh, going into the mission field. Hey, will you come to my church? And whatever their answer was, at least we can check that off. I did my duty of asking them, but I, it has to be way more than that, folks. It has to be way more than that because there is nothing more powerful than relational evangelism. When you share your life with somebody and they share a little bit of their life with you and you're able to discuss your faith with them, it makes a huge impact. And so think about it this way. The disciples were ordinary men. They were unschooled when Jesus called them into the ministry. And Jesus invites them onto his team. And it's amazing what they were able to do simply by observing the things that Jesus taught and then carrying those things out. You know, our mission at Revive Christian Church has always been to help people far from God come to life in Christ. And it takes all of us to continue to grow in Him, to grow in the Lord so that we can carry out the mission of making more disciples. And you guys, let me tell you this. We can do it. We can do it. If our goal is to reach the people of Loveland or Northern Colorado, we can do this, but we have to do it together. It's going to take every one of us to do our part. We can do this, but we have to get off the bench and we have to get into the game. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for just teaching us through your word and this idea of sending us out into the mission field and this idea that we would all be living on mission for your kingdom, whether it's in our marriages, in our families, Father God, as a church, in our friendships, that we would just be dedicated 100% to going out into the mission field, to going into our neighborhoods, to go into our workplaces, to go into our schools. Maybe it's even in our own homes but we were dedicated to sharing you with the people around us. And so help us to live that out with everything that we have. And this we ask in your name. Amen.